Well, one more time, will you bow your head with me in prayer? Father, we ask that your word would pierce our minds and our hearts, would give shape to our thoughts, to our lives, that you would rebuke us where we need rebuking, encourage us where we need encouragement, and Lord, in all things, sanctify us and wash us with your word. Would your spirit be here in the reading of your word and, and even in its preaching, uh, that you would be powerful and mighty to save. pray this in your name. Amen. Well, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. There are some things you just can't come back from. There are some things that are so final and so finished, when they are said and done, they can't be taken back. In Humpty's case, after he falls down from the wall, uh, that is it for him, at least as those four verses uh, go. In the case of Luke 16, we find that at the point of death, there is a moment of reversal, a moment of finality, uh, a moment which uh, one might say the rich man wishes he could, given the new information he has access to, uh, he could go back and change all that he did. Uh, but there are some things you just can't come back from. And Jesus, being a marvelous and masterful instructor and storyteller, has weaved together a series of parables so far in Luke's text that is illustrating to us the importance of living with the end in mind, living with eternity in your gaze. There are so many parables that, that come out of these teachings, right? The, the parable of the dishonest manager, which we looked at last week. Uh, the parable of the prodigal son, which, which encourages of the grace that is to be had if you repent and turn back and find fellowship once again with the Father. Uh, there, are, there are myriads and myriads of stories that Jesus tells to warn people of the urgency of repenting and believing and trusting in him in this life while there is still time left. And here in our text this evening, Luke 16, verses 19 through 31, he is once again illustrating for us, by means of a negative example, uh, what it means to be a wise steward of this life. What does it mean to wisely steward the blessings that God has given you? And let's say if you had a peek across to the other side, if you could look beyond the veil into the future, what would you see? What would you learn? And what would you do differently in light of your information? So with that in mind, let's look at the text of Luke 16, beginning in verse 19. And once again, look closely at what Jesus is saying. He tells a story. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Verse 19 introduces us to one of the two characters we are to meet in this text, the rich man. He is not rich by means of uh, being more affluent than others. Uh, this would be a Hollywood celebrity rich. The text tells us that he adorns himself in the finest clothes and the finest garments that are lying around. This, this man is well-dressed and everyone knows that he's well-dressed because he is wealthy. Not only is he well-dressed and he puts on external displays of his riches, but he also indulges in, uh, it says, feasting sumptuously every day. Now, you might think about feasting as getting a slightly larger portion at a certain fast food place or a certain restaurant. The first century Jews 
knew how to feast and how to celebrate. Kings would, would feast and celebrate by having whole calves killed and slaughtered and prepared, and all of their servants would prepare meals together to dine, and it would be a, a wedding feast, a, a huge ordeal. And this man was so wealthy, he could do so every day. He could feast, and he could celebrate, and he could engage in this kind of indulgence every single day. The text is making clear for us, Jesus is making clear, that this is not a man who was barely scraping by or who had just enough money to pay the bills. This is a man who had everything and then some and spent it in accordance. He never runs out of finances, unlike the prodigal son when he flees to a distant land and eventually runs out of resources. This man, despite all his luxury, luxurious spending and all his indulgence, he never runs out of resources. He's a wealthy man, is what the text is telling us. And then we meet in verse 20, another individual. And this man is named Lazarus. Verse 20 says, And at his gate, the gate of this rich man, was laid a poor man named Lazarus. He was covered with sores, and he desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Lazarus is contrasted sharply with the rich man. What's apparent in Lazarus's case is he has almost no material comforts within this world, whereas the rich man has, as we just said, every material comfort that money could buy. Lazarus is impoverished. He is in the gate of the rich man, which tells us probably even more so about the wealth of the rich man. I don't know what kind of, your, what kind of living situation you have, but if you have a big enough house where you need a gate to let people in and out, uh, you're probably fairly wealthy, where there's a gate to access your, your dwelling place. The rich man, uh, Lazarus isn't at his doorstep. Lazarus is outside of his gate. He's outside of the premises. This man has quite a bit of wealth. But Lazarus is there nevertheless. And the only people uh, or the only things taking care of Lazarus are the dogs which come by to lick his sores. Now this is to contrast with how negligent the rich man is towards Lazarus. Whereas the rich man who has every material means necessary to deal with Lazarus's plight does not do so, the dogs who have no incentive or benefit to gain from licking Lazarus's sores actually do in some way care for him. Uh, the dogs are doing a better job than the rich man of treating poor Lazarus. And in verse 22, we find death, the great equalizer, the great thing that no one can undo once done. What does death do for the poor man and for the rich man? Verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. At death, everything changes for the poor man and for the rich man. At the very least, Jesus is telling us that you cannot look at what you have access to materially in this life for an indication of what you will have access to in the next life. At the very least, the rich man's riches were not a sign of God's ultimate favor towards him, and Lazarus's poverty are not a sign of God's ultimate disfavor of him. Rather, this life seems rather arbitrary, some would say. Under God's providence and God's sovereignty, it's a lot more difficult to work out who is blessed by God and who is under God's condemnation than often is easy for us to tell. 
you, my point is, you can't just look at someone's external life, see what they have going on, and conclude God favors and loves that person, or this person is uh, despised by God. You just can't conclude things like that from this life. Sometimes God afflicts his children with great suffering for their edification. Sometimes God blesses his children immensely for, so they can be a blessing to the nations. The point of the text is that you cannot make those kinds of assumptions from this life. But the problem with the rich man, the reason he's in Hades, is not because he's rich. Because as you notice, the man on the other end of the chasm is Abraham. And in the Old Testament, Abraham isn't exactly poor. Abraham, uh, one of the stories tells us that, well, when Abraham wants to go get back uh, a couple of his uh, resources, he musters up 300 servants armed to the teeth and uh, a, a little fighting force to go forward and get done what he needs to get done. Abraham is a wealthy man, a very wealthy man in the Old Testament. Uh, he has an army ready at the snap of his fingers. And he's on the other side, the, the comforting side of the chasm. So richness is not what Jesus is targeting here in the parable. What he's targeting is a squandering of riches, which points to a deeper issue, something we've seen throughout Luke's gospel, that the fruit is evidence of the kind of tree which is producing it. The rich man, by means of his external fruits, his spending, and his view towards Lazarus, is proving what was actually true on the inside the whole time, namely that he is not in any way informed by God's grace towards him in this life. So what does the rich man do when he sees and assesses his situation in verse 24? He calls out to Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said to him, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all these, between us and you, there is a great chasm which has been fixed. And in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from us from there to us. There are some things, once you have done them, which cannot be undone. And he said, this is Abraham again, I beg you, Father, to send him then to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And what does Abraham say to this final request? No, they have Moses, they have the prophets. Let them hear those testimonies. What does the text mean to teach us in this narrative illustration? What are the points of Jesus telling us all this information about the afterlife, life beyond death, a glance behind the curtain? What are we to do with that information? Well, in part, this parable, we would be wise to observe, does not happen in isolation from the rest of Luke's gospel. I try to, as often as I can, remind you that Jesus is in a flow of argument in Luke's gospel. And what he's been arguing for the last several weeks that we've been studying the text is that there is a difference between how you live, if you live with eternity in mind, or you live without eternity in mind at all. For instance, living with eternity in mind means that you will long to eat at his banquet and not satisfy yourself with snacks this side of eternity, squandering wealth and squandering riches. To live with eternity in mind means you will be forgiving 
because of how greatly God has forgiven you to welcome you into his family and into his house. See that with the prodigal son. And most notably, last week we saw that living with eternity in mind means you steward your resources and all that God has blessed you with in this life as a wise investment for the next. Well, then who is the negative example of what it looks like to have access to a great number of resources and not steward them well, if not the rich man, who we're told has every material resource available to him and yet chooses to use none of it for the benefit of Lazarus who is at his doorstep. The rich man is an example of what an unwise steward looks like who has been blessed in every single way and yet has squandered those blessings manifestly throughout their whole life. So first and foremost, Jesus commends to us wise stewardship. He commends to us what it means to have access to resources and use them well. Now, there's a tendency, I fear, for Christians to get a little bit trigger happy at parables like this, a little bit application happy, and to jump to conclusions like, therefore, the mission of the church is to solve global poverty, or at least poverty in our area. The mission of the church should be to deal with every physical ailment which, which uh, assaults our society. Is that what Jesus is teaching us here in the text? Think, rather than saying what Jesus is teaching us is that every Christian should be on mission to solve material affliction and poverty or hunger, what Jesus is instead teaching us is that if you have someone in your life who you have been materially blessed to help and you choose to forgo helping them, it is a testimony to your heart posture towards the resources God has blessed you with. Consider Lazarus, who is not some nameless, faceless person in the rich man's life. Lazarus sits on his gate. Lazarus is interacting with the rich man on a daily basis, being passed over on a regular basis. He is a person in the rich man's life who the rich man does not deal with, does not rescue. That's very different than going all the way to conclude you, Christian, need to give every spare ounce of your paycheck to deal with material poverty in this world. That's just not the conclusion of the text. But the conclusion of the text would rightly be, if you, Christian, have someone in your life who God has blessed you to help, to aid, to rescue in some way, you ought to use the resources God has blessed you with to do that. In the rich man's case, he could have solved much of, not all of, but much of Lazarus's ailments by tending to him, by covering his wounds, by providing for him health care and, and all, all manner of things, even feeding him the, the food of his table. And he chooses not to, which is to say that he is testifying to the true condition of his heart. He doesn't think that his riches is a blessing from God. Therefore, he's not going to steward it like someone who owes anything to a master. But Christian, you're different. If you know your blessings, your gifts, your abilities, your treasures, and your resources are from God, you would steward them in correspondence to how you see them coming down to you. If God is the ultimate owner of all things and he temporarily entrusts you with finances or temporarily entrusts you with time or temporarily entrusts you with some opportunity, then you ought to steward it in light of his ultimate, his ultimate blessing you with it. 
And he tells us in his word how we ought to steward it for the growth of the kingdom, for the expansion of the gospel. He gives us those guidelines. So you're mistaken to think that this text tells you you have to tithe more or you have to give more of your money away. That could be if you're in the financial position where God has called you to do so. But it could just as equally mean, husbands, if you are neglecting your wife, who God has charged you to be responsible for and to love and to cherish and to serve, then you ought to take care of the person God has put you in your life to serve before you worry about solving all kinds of problems in the world. If you're discipling someone and they're in your life and they're going through, going through it right now, they're in hardship and affliction and all kinds of turmoil, and you are neglecting them for your own self-interest or your own benefit, God says, stop and take care of the person who's at your gate. The person who's in your life, who you actually can help, who you actually can rescue, who you actually can minister to. That is the appropriate way to understand this text. Now, if God has blessed you financially to solve the material afflictions of someone in your life, and by God's grace, he's blessed you in that way, then you should do so. But he hasn't blessed everyone in the same way. Not everyone is blessed with financial affluence. Some people are blessed with all kinds of other resources available to them to employ for the benefit of their neighbor. The command of scripture is not to give all of your money away. The command of scripture is to love your neighbor as yourself, which means how God has blessed you, you ought to love your neighbor in response with his blessing. That's called wise stewardship. And we ought to consider the kind of stewardship the text commends to us. But the text teaches us more than just wise stewardship. The text also teaches us all kinds of things about the ultimate destination and reality of the human soul. I don't know what you've heard or what you think, but scripture has a clear understanding of what it looks like to live beyond this life. Scripture has a clear picture, and Jesus particularly has a clear distinction between a life lived well and a life squandered. And eternity is a world of difference for those two realities. The final destination of the human soul is clearly stated here in the text, where we see that at death, there's a constitutional change for the rich man and for Lazarus. At death, the final reality, the more concrete reality of things as they are, is fixed. The eternal reality is set into motion. And we come to understand that whatever happened in this life, the rich man's wealth and prosperity and the poor man's affliction, are not testimonies to their ultimate destination. Rather, this life is actually considered fleeting in light of their ultimate destination. The part of the text that ought to strike you is how irreversible death is. Hebrews 9.27 tells us that it is appointed to man once to die, and then after that comes the judgment. The text here tells us that at the death of the rich man, he cannot cross back over to Abraham's bosom. Despite requesting to do so and, and making a host of requests towards Abraham, he cannot affect anything of his conscious torment that he faces. Jesus is teaching us something when he shows us this peek behind the veil, namely that we should learn from the rich man's failure. We should learn from his mistake. We should observe with care what it would be like for us to live our lives informed by the rich man's ultimate reality. The real issue 
that the text brings to light is what we would call the doctrine of hell, which we know that there is many opinions in this world about hell, whether it is real or not, whether it is a, a thing or not. Many people will affirm uh, the, the identity of an afterlife, some hope of life beyond death, but many fewer people will affirm any kind of suffering-related afterlife. But I'm not really concerned about what the world thinks about the doctrine of hell, because first and foremost, I think the church has given up its doctrine of hell. Every false teaching on the doctrine of hell has not come from the world, who we know doesn't really believe much in that doctrine, but all the false teachings which propagate today have actually originated from Christians in the church trying to deal with the pain or the seemingly unjust nature of God's character or all kinds of ethical problems which come up out of the doctrine. And the church cannot expect the world to believe in hell as a reality and live in light of it if the church has not first done so. So as a church, as a Christian church, we need to get our testimony straight before we can expect for the world to believe us when we say anything about the afterlife. If the church is divided among itself, the world is not going to listen to anything we have to say about eternal destination. So what are, what are the incorrect understandings from within the church on the doctrine? Uh, one of them would be a trivialization of hell such that it is an only temporary kind of thing. That someone may or may not go to a place called hell, but certainly not for eternity. Certainly only for a period of time and then ultimately God will destroy them and they will be done away with, but there will not be eternal conscious suffering in that place. Well, this doctrine is found for us nowhere in the teachings of Jesus, and it's not even hinted at in any of his teaching, because everywhere he speaks of the afterlife, he speaks about it as eternal, uh, the eternal fire which goes up forever and ever. Or here in the text, does the text give you any indication that Abraham just says, just hold on a little longer, it'll all be over soon. The text tells us that about this life, but not about that life. The text tells us that in the life to come, more permanent things take place. Things are fixed into a more real finality. So that the rich man's position in Hades, in torment, is a painful location of suffering. It is a real pain, it is a real location, and he tells us a great number of things, namely by his desperation to himself flee and also to keep everyone else away from it, namely his five brothers who he is very much concerned for, given now what he knows about hell. The church gains nothing from taking all those realities and trivializing them. And in fact, all we do is we take the total oomph of the parable out and we, we remove the teeth of what Jesus is teaching us here. Jesus does not teach us about Lazarus who is comforted and the rich man who just goes into non-existence. He teaches us about Lazarus who is comforted and the rich man who is, who is punished. The point of this is that this life really does matter. How you live in this life, what you believe, how you reconcile with God for your sin, it really does matter. And when you're witnessing to someone, they can't seriously expect to believe in hell or heaven if your whole life speaks about the triviality of eternity in light of how you live and how you speak. 
As a Christian, your whole life is testimony, not just the words you say. So if you spend uh, time trying to witness, for example, to friends or coworkers, and you try to tell them about the gravity of eternity, and the whole time you squander away your days and you don't live in light of any kind of substantive reality in the future, why would you expect them to believe you when you start speaking about weighty and serious things? They shouldn't believe you because you don't even believe you. And so as Christians, we are called to not only believe these doctrines, but also live our lives in light of these doctrines. To give you an example from, from my own life, I am currently planning to run a half marathon in a couple of months. Now, those of you who know what I just said know that that can't be true because on a week-to-week -week basis, I don't live my whole life as though I'm actually seriously going to run a half marathon in a couple of months. I sometimes run, sometimes I don't, sometimes I don't feel like it. At best, I've run three or maybe four miles a week in the last couple of weeks. So if I don't take myself seriously when I say those words, why should I expect you to believe me when I say those words? With a half marathon, it's one thing. If you're talking about eternity, reality, and your whole testimony of life says, I don't believe this, but your words say you do, people are going to listen to the louder testimony. So it is with the doctrine of eternity. If you believe it to the core and you live in light of it, then you can expect other people to begin to believe it. But if you don't, others won't. And if the church doesn't, the world won't. And so the church needs to get it right. We as a people, as a Christian church, are marred by our incoherence on this topic. We believe all kinds of philosophical speculations. And all this text teaches us is that eternity is real, it is final, and we should live in light of it. That's the whole thrust of what Jesus is saying. So if we can somehow spin the text of scripture to say essentially the opposite of what Jesus is trying to teach us here, uh, we are expressing a great deal of arrogance on our part to try to undo what Jesus is teaching us. But if this text is striking for what it teaches on the finality of hell, you might also find the text striking for what it teaches about the sufficiency of scripture in light of all that. What strikes me most about this text is what happens when the rich man asks Abraham to send someone back from the dead. If you look with me at verse 27, he says, Then I beg you, Father, send him, being Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. He's saying, send Lazarus to my brothers to witness to them and to warn them so that they might be saved, so they don't go where I am. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Now, before just glancing over that, Moses and the prophets, none of them are still alive at the point where this parable is taking place in the first century. So what on earth could Abraham be talking about if he says, let them hear Moses and the prophets? He's alluding to scripture. They have a coherent message from Moses and all the prophets who followed Moses. And that message is enough for them to hear, understand, and respond. But the rich man presses further, essentially like, I don't think you heard me quite right, Abraham. 
And he says, verse 30, no, Father Abraham. But listen here, if someone comes back to them from the dead, they will believe, certainly. And what does Abraham say? Probably one of the most striking things in all of scripture. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither, neither will they be convinced, even if someone should rise from the dead. Now, if you're sitting here thinking, what, it, what would be a sufficient proof for me to believe in God or Jesus or for me to convince my friend or family member or coworkers to convince him to believe in Jesus? What would be sufficient? What would God have to do constitutionally in this world to persuade you or your unbelieving family member or friend of the reality of Jesus? What would be sufficient? The rich man says the sufficient criteria is someone who they know to have died to come back to them and testify to them about the reality of eternal life. That will be sufficient criteria. But notice what he's also implying there, which is that he, in his life, did not have sufficient criteria to respond appropriately to the message. If you take the rich man's word seriously, he's implying that while he was unjustly convicted because he had an insufficient knowledge of eternal life, at least Abraham could send Lazarus to go take care of his brothers so that they could have a sufficient and fair chance of responding. But what Abraham says is, not only are your brothers currently having a fair shot, but everyone who has access to the scriptures has a fair shot of understanding this thing and living in light of it. Now that is striking because if you're like me at all, when you've been reading the scriptures and when you've been trying to speak to people who are not convinced about God, about these texts, the number one thought or doubt in my mind is why would they believe this? What other resources or materials could I bring to bear that would prove the veracity of this book or this witness or this story? The book is the veracity. The, it is its own best witness. There's nothing beyond the text of scripture that you could add to someone's witness or testimony that could somehow take it over the edge to seal the deal. Now, I don't just say that arbitrarily because, well, the very text of Luke's gospel, he's, he's, in Luke's gospel, he's setting up for us something, which is going to pay out uh, by chapter 24, which is that Jesus actually does die and does come back to life and people still don't believe in him at the end of his resurrection, sealing the deal on, on these very words. But there's also another Lazarus in the Bible who dies and is resurrected. And the two Lazaruses in scripture, one from John's gospel and one from Luke's gospel, testify to us about the sufficiency of scripture because the one in Luke's gospel doesn't come back and, and Abraham says scripture is sufficient because they won't even believe even if I do send him back. And the other Lazarus, when he resurrects to life or when he is raised to life by Jesus, well, what do the Pharisees and scribes all conclude? We should put, to get, we should put this man to death because he bears witness about the son of God. They don't believe, even though he came back from the dead, sealing the deal on these words. And you think that's a story in scripture and not something that abides today as a, a lived reality? 
Just talk to anyone and ask them about why they don't believe in God. What is it that would prevent them from believing? And in my experience, any number of reasons could be offered. All of them, all of them, criteria that scripture could not possibly meet. Because they've decided that the bar is higher than what scripture promotes. If Jesus came back now today in the flesh to me and told me I need to confess my sin, repent, and follow him as Lord, I would do so. Well, Jesus doesn't give us any indication that he's going to do that in your life. But what he does tell us is that he did it in the past and he now has an abiding witness to you in the present. What is the sufficient criteria that would it take for someone to believe? I would contend with you a little bit more strongly than what I'm just arguing now. It's not just that they have Moses and the prophets to, to, to teach them, but actually now with the completion of the New Testament, they actually have Christ Jesus regularly presented to them as crucified so that they have an opportunity to see him as he is and respond appropriately. Now, you don't have to take my word for that. Paul says that. If you'll turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians, Paul is defending his, his witness, the gospel that he presented before them. And he's guarding them from false teaching. And in guarding them from false teaching, he says a surprising kind of thing. This is in Galatians chapter 3 and, and verse 1. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now that's as far as we need to read to understand what Paul is saying here. The church in Galatia is located in Asia Minor, far removed from Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified. The letter that Paul writes to the Galatians is written decades after Jesus was crucified. The Galatian church is primarily made up of both Jews and Gentiles together. My point is the, the odds that Paul is referring to a small subset of the church in Galatia and saying, you were there when he was crucified, so you know what I'm talking about, is very low. But what Paul has argued throughout his time in the letter to the Galatians is that he had preached the gospel faithfully to them. And he, he ch uh, chastised them for not believing his initial gospel message. And then he says the words, these words, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Or if I might interpret that for you, it was before your eyes that I presented Christ Jesus through my preaching as publicly portrayed as crucified. His death, burial, and resurrection is portrayed through not only the reading of his word, but also the preaching of his word, the sharing of the gospel to people. So in some sense, it is actually the case that every time you share the gospel with someone, or they hear a sermon, or the word of God is read and discussed, that the, the dead is brought back to life, shown before them, presented to them for an offer of repentance and salvation. But here is the sufficient witness that if they didn't believe Moses and the prophets, if they didn't believe the Old Testament on what God said about mercy and grace, neither would they believe the New Testament if someone should rise from the dead. There's no criteria that you could come up with that is going to persuade your unbelieving friend or you 
aside from the already evident testimony of Scripture. And if you think, well, that seems unfair because I have reasonable standards that I'm asking God for, God is all wise, infinitely so. And he knows exactly what it takes to convert you to faith. He tells us in his word what it takes, that the gospel would be preached, that salvation would be offered, and that repentance would be granted to all who have faith and confess him. The all-wise God knows what it takes to save souls. He sent his son on the cross to save souls. He knows what it takes. So we shouldn't go about adding additional criteria beyond what he has given us already. We are often, I think, tempted to think of these sufficient proofs that an unbelieving world would actually buy into if we presented them before him, before the unbelieving world. But what Abraham tells us is that there is not any amount of sufficient data that could possibly persuade a sinner beyond what has already been provided. It is not as though, Christian, God is using his worst resources to save unbelievers. It's not like he's, he's got his worst material in front of us and he's trying to do, it, do the best he can with what he's got. The second person of the Trinity is the testimony we have. The preserved scriptures throughout thousands of years is what we have. Uh, the preaching of the gospel by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the conversion of hearts by God's grace and his gifts poured out on the church and the witness of the saints throughout all generations is what we're working with. That's not, that's not playing with his worst resources. This is God sending all three persons of the Trinity to do their best to save sinners. God is using everything at his disposal to save the lost unto himself. And it is, it is not as though God is weak in saving. It is that the, the lost are hardened and, as Paul would say, unsound of mind in their rejection of the gospel. To press Paul's argument as far as I think he does, he says effectively that if you don't believe in Christ and the repentance that is offered in him, it's not that God's testimony is insufficient. It's that your heart is too hardened to see that truth. Now, if that's the case, if that's what's being argued here, the question would be, what do we learn from, from Jesus telling us this? If it's all said and done by our own hardness or acceptance of it, what, what is the point of hearing this story? Isn't it all in the past, kind of fixed? Well, ask yourself this question. Why is it that Jesus even bothers to tell this parable? What is the purpose of him warning the Pharisees and his disciples of this reality? Why did Luke decide to record this text in his gospel and give it to us if it simply communicated a theological idea, namely that scripture is sufficient? I think the reason is because the very warning given here is itself an opportunity and a plea to hear the, hear the gospel, hear the good news, repent, and believe. If you consider God's constant judgment of Israel in the Old Testament, where he comes and chastises them and, and brings in a foreign army to put them in humility, and then he brings them back to himself and rescues them, and he, he does so all over again and again and again. Every time he bruises them and gives them over to discipline, it is so that they might actually hear and repent and believe that he is the one true God and they ought to serve him faithfully. Every time in the entirety of Luke's gospel, Jesus is telling us about the finality of judgment. He does not do so to simply teach you truths. He does so to plea for your soul, to hear the warnings and to believe. And that is true even today through the ongoing preaching of God's word, even as it was read out loud before we started this study. 
that God, through the power of the Spirit and through His preserved Word, is saying to you, now is a time to repent. There is no moment too late except for death itself. And there is no point in despairing before that moment because God is gracious to save, rich to welcome, as we learn in the prodigal son, that he can forgive any amount of sin outstanding. All it takes is for you to flee and return to him and leave, up the, and leave the rest up to him and his sufficient salvation. That is the good news of the gospel offered before you and which as Christians we celebrate every single week as we gather in worship. With that being said, let's close in prayer as we continue now in worship. Our Father in God, you are the all-sufficient Savior of the lost. It is by your grace and your mercy and your word that lost souls are brought into right relationship with you. It is by the sacrifice of your Son that we are made right, not by our merits, not by our own actions or activities, but solely by your grace. Lord, we thank you for that grace. We pray now that you would bless us to hear these words and respond appropriately, be it encouragement for those of us who have been dealt with in this way, who have been saved from eternal damnation, or whether it be for conviction for us who have not yet made that choice. Lord, we ask for your grace, that your spirit would accompany your word, not only now, but into the weeks and days following, that you would be pleased to press into our hearts the finality of that day. I pray this all in your name. Amen.